Tonight on Throwback Thursday, as Tune FM celebrates 50 years, 1982. Southwest Tasmania was recently added to the World Heritage List. A list which includes the Grand Canyon in the United States, Mount Everest in Nepal, and in Australia, the Great Barrier Reef. We're discussing three major events from the year 1982, including the High Court case between Kuwata and Bjelke Peterson, the Franklin Dam controversy, and Michael Jackson's thriller. <laughs> <laughs> All that and more tonight on Throwback Thursday, 1982. It's great to have you with me here on Throwback Thursday this evening as we look at the year 1982. Once again, I'd like to extend some thanks to uh, the wonderful people that were considering joining us on the show this evening and unfortunately were not able to do so. All of our lecturers are very busy people at this particular time as we get used to a trimester that's a little bit different to the usual. So uh, once again, thank you for uh, their consideration and hopefully we will be able to have someone on the show in the coming weeks. But for now, we'll just uh, go with what has been the usual format over the last couple of weeks of looking at a few different uh, things that happened in 1982. We've got two Australian events uh, this evening and one that was very significant uh, from elsewhere. We're starting with the Kuwata versus Bielke Peterson case in the High Court of Australia. Very significant case in uh, in terms of the Racial Discrimination Act and its enforcement in constitutional law. We have the Franklin Dam controversy, a dam that was planned to be built in Tasmania, which you might have heard of. Uh, and there was a quite a deal of controversy over that and that was uh, eventually scrapped but there were protests that began in 1982 and stretched into 83 and we're going to be talking about Michael Jackson's Thriller uh, the album of which was released in late 1982 while the single was released a little bit earlier in the year but we will kick it off with Kuwata versus Bielke Peterson. Obviously, the uh, the issue that we're talking about tonight that you've probably heard the least about since it's not really uh, covered to quite the extent that uh, the other issues that we're talking about uh, have been. Uh, this was a really significant court case in the history of Australia. It was de decided in the High Court on the 11th of May, 1982. And essentially, it was a fight over the constitutional validity of certain parts of the 1975 Racial Discrimination Act. Um, it was the Joe Bielke Peterson government in Queensland uh, were being essentially sued by an Aboriginal man over blocking the purchase of land by Aboriginal people in northern Queensland. The plaintiff was an Aboriginal Australian man by the name of John Kuwata. He was a member of the Wick Nation, the indigenous inhabitants of the Arakun region of the Cape York Peninsula. And back in 1974, he and a number of other stockmen had planned to purchase uh, the Archer River Cattle Station, which is a, a rather large cattle station in northern Queensland that covers most of the uh, Wick people's traditional homeland. Uh, they were going to use funds provided by what had been established by, I believe, the Whitland, Whitlam government, the Aboriginal Land Fund Commission. Uh, and they approached an American businessman who owned the station, and he agreed to sell the lease to them. So everything was was going perfectly fine. But in February 1976, after the commission made a contract to purchase the property, uh, that contract was blocked by the Queensland government before the sale could be completed. 
Joe, Bel- Joe Bielke-Peterson, who was the Premier of Queensland at the time, and those who know a little bit about Bielke-Peterson will know how controversial of a Premier he was, he did not approve of the sale because, and this was the reason that he stated, let it let it be clear, this is not a reason that his, uh, his political opponents made up or, or something like that. He did not believe that Aboriginal people should be able to acquire large areas of land, which was reflected in his official cabinet policy. Now, obviously, that is absolutely outrageous today. But if you know a little bit about the Bielke-Peterson government, it was certainly nothing out of the ordinary for them. Uh, And so as such, because of that particular belief and that particular policy, he directed the Queensland Minister of Lands not to approve the sale. Uh, John Kawata initially saw that as racial discrimination. And of course, we had the 1975 Racial Discrimination Act, which uh, made that unlawful in Australia as of 1975. So he made a complaint to the Human Rights and Equal Opportunity Commission on the basis that blocking the sale was discriminatory. Uh, The commission actually upheld his complaint, but the Queensland government then appealed to the Supreme Court of Queensland and brought a separate action against the government of Australia, arguing that they actually had no power to pass the Racial Discrimination Act. So it was moved to the High Court of Australia, and this became one of the landmark court cases in Australian history, particularly when it comes to uh, racial discrimination in this country. Uh, so essentially, it was it was a rather publicised uh, case at the time. There was a lot of people on both sides putting out their opinions in the media, and there was a lot of media coverage. Basically, John Kawada presented his case to the Human Rights Commission, saying that the policy uh, by the Queensland government to block Aboriginal acquisition of large areas of land was discriminatory under Sections 9 and 12 of the Racial Discrimination Act. While Bielke Peterson, uh, on behalf of the Queensland government, was arguing that the Racial Discrimination Act should not be valid and that the Australian government had no power to make it. Um, absolutely atrocious stuff when you think about it from today's perspective. Um Obviously, even it being 1982, that is extremely outdated, uh, even when we consider the dates uh, when these sorts of things came into play. Of course, the Racial Discrimination Act at that time was seven years old um, and was introduced by the Whitlam federal government uh, in 1975. But um, the, the other argument that he made, which is also quite ludicrous, I'd like to point out, was that um, the – was that – They argued that the Parliament of Australia had to make laws for the people of any race, um, that it should not apply to that particular act um, because they had to make they had to make laws essentially for people of all races and that there shouldn't be special laws given to anyone of any individual race, which pretty ridiculous since, first of all, the Racial Discrimination Act did not only apply to Aboriginal Australians, it applied to all races, as Bilky Peterson so wisely pointed out. But uh, second of all, because that's completely the opposite of the purpose of the Racial Discrimination Act. But that aside, um, the the case came to court, the High Court, and the real question of the case was, is the Racial Discrimination Act valid? And in the end, uh, skipping to the end after what was a highly publicized debate uh, and brought out probably the worst in a lot of people in the media and in the Australian public. And there was a really um, quite ridiculous uh, media coverage of it uh, right around Australia. By a majority of six to one, the court found that the uh, Racial Discrimination Act 
was not valid under the race power, but by a majority of four to three, found that it was valid within the external affairs power. So three judges uh, adopted that uh, narrow view, but essentially um, it came down to the tiniest of majorities and eventually um, the the blocking of Kuwata's uh, purchase of the lease was re- lease was removed back to the Supreme Court and the decision there was eventually made after let, let it be known six more years it took six more years for that part of the case to be settled in 1988 they ruled in favor of Kuwata um, basically that that all becoming a massive landmark case throughout the 1980s um, that really defined Australia's approach to racial discrimination after what had been some time. Like we mentioned, um, the Racial Discrimination Act only came into being in 1975 under the Whitlam government. And um, when you consider, when all things are considered there in terms of how long um, Australia has been a Commonwealth and how long um, white Australians have been here and then by extension how long Aboriginal Australians have been here, 1975 is, is a drop in the ocean in terms of time. So it's... Um, a little bit of a stain on our history that it took us that long, but this was another landmark moment um, that in the 1980s, the High Court actually did eventually rule in favour of uh, racial discrimination being uh, unlawful in this case. Unfortunately, if you know anything about Joe Bielke-Peterson, you would know that it would not end there. After the Supreme Court um, basically ruled with Kuwata, um, the sale was going to proceed, but at the last minute, Bielke Peterson, in what has been described as an act of spite and prejudice, declared the Archer River property a national park, the what is now known as the Oyala Tumatang National Park, uh, just to ensure that no one could ever own it. But uh, that has been partially rectified. Now, in 2010, then-Queensland Premier Anna Bly announced that 75,000 hectares, um, a portion of the park, would be given to the Wikmunkana peoples as freehold land. So, uh, a little bit of spite coming in, unfortunately, at the end there, just ruining that happy ending slightly. But as people will know, uh, if you knew, if you were around when Joe Bielke-Peterson was the Premier of Queensland, that's Joe Bielke-Peterson for you, unfortunately. Um, but that was such a landmark case that uh, the, the High Court and indeed the Supreme Court eventually ruled that the Racial Discrimination Act was valid as a valid exercise of the external affairs power. And they ruled in favor of uh, the Aboriginal man seeking to buy land, uh, ruling that it was unlawful to prevent him from doing so because of his race. So a really landmark moment in 1982. Uh, We're going to go to a quick break and hear a song. Coming up in the next talk break, we'll be talking about the Franklin Dam controversy, which was a rather pivotal moment in an environmental standpoint in Australian history. So that's coming up next, right after this song break. You're listening to Throwback Thursday, 1982. Elsewhere in 1982, the Falklands War. Argentina invaded the Falkland Islands on the 19th of March, and the UK sent the Royal Navy, RAF, and the Army to retake possession of the islands. During the conflict, the Argentine Exocet missile sank the HMS Sheffield on the 4th of May, and the nuclear submarine HMS Conqueror sank the Argentine cruiser General Belgrano. Argentina would eventually surrender on the 14th of June. You're listening to 106.9 Tune FM. This is Eye of the Tiger by Survivor. 
You're listening to Throwback Thursday 1982, Kuwata vs. Bjelke Peterson, The Franklin Dam, and Thriller. You are indeed listening to Throwback Thursday. It's Jake here with you. Great to be back here on Throwback Thursday once again. Unfortunately, we could not be joined by any of the lecturers that we wanted to have on the show this evening. They are all very busy people at this particular moment in time, uh, but we will continue nonetheless. And we're moving on now to the Franklin Dam controversy, which came to a head in 1982. Essentially, um, this dam was intended to be built on the Gordon River in Tasmania, um, the Franklin Dam. It was never eventually constructed, but basically the dam was proposed for the purpose of generating hydroelectricity. Uh, This electricity uh, generation capacity would have been about 180 megawatts, uh, which would have unfortunately, also subsequently impacted on the very environmentally sensitive Franklin River. Uh, There was a massive campaign against the dam. It was originally proposed in 1978. Uh, Controversy continued right throughout, including those famous yellow triangle, no dams uh, stickers and signs that that, uh, are rather similar to the ones that you see today in terms of uh, coal seam gas and mining and those sorts of things uh, everywhere. That's that's where they came from. Uh, And there was there was a really big movement against uh, this dam, particularly because of the sensitivity of the Franklin River as uh, as a as an Australian ecosystem. The plans were originally announced in 1978 by the Tasmanian Hydroelectric Commission uh, that the purpose was to build two dams, one uh, called Gordon Below Franklin Dam. Uh, this was the main one that caused all the controversy and there was to be a second dam uh, a little bit further downstream it was to be uh, cre- it was to be uh, basically for the the generation of hydroelectricity it completely polarized the Tasmanian community um, some thought that it would be great for generating jobs um, that area of the state was struggling economically at the time uh, and it was suggested that the construction of the dam would assist in bringing in industry to Tasmania um, and, of course, create jobs directly as well. Um, so initial polls showed about 70% support for the dam, but a protest movement began with uh, people arguing that it would be rather disruptive to the local ecosystem. There was a lot of attempts at compromise. There was a lot of inquiries. And eventually, opinions started to sway back in the other direction that this dam should not in fact be built in the end throughout all of the protests and all of the uh, essentially uh, all of the controversy there were over 1200 arrests made Um, it went to court uh, eventually but what came to a head in December of 1982 was that the dam site was actually occupied by protesters which is what led to a number of those widespread arrests and a great deal of publicity for the issue as well the dispute would become a federal issue the following March um, when the campaign in the national print media um, assisted by photographers actually was a major factor in bringing down the Malcolm Fraser government in the 1983 election this was a major factor that led to his defeat at that election uh, to ultimately the next prime minister who of course we will be talking a little bit more about next week when we move on to 1983 bob hawk uh, hawk actually then promised to stop the bit dam from being built along the way um, unesco declared the franklin river and its surrounds a unesco world heritage site and this became a really big pivotal point in that debate as the High Court then ruled 
that under the World Heritage Properties Conservation Act of 1983, which they then uh, passed through the Hawke government, uh, that they that it was within constitutional powers, which made it unlawful for the Hydroelectric Commission of Tasmania to construct that dam without the consent of a Commonwealth minister, which, of course, they did not get. Um, it was a massive blockade was the was the real big high point, which is why we're talking about this in 1982, despite the fact that it took place over the late 70s and the early 80s. Um, in November of 1982, this conflict had been going on for quite some time, this uh, this really big fight to protect the Franklin River against uh, what was essentially really large government approval of this project. And it all stepped up a notch when um, they began a blockade of the dam site on the 14th of December. And on the same day, that uh, the UNESCO committee in Paris was uh, going to list the Tasmanian Wild Rivers as a World Heritage Site. The blockade ended up drawing 2,500 people, not only from Tasmania, but also from interstate and overseas, which uh, led to the proclamation of that Tasmanian Wilderness World Heritage Area, covering both the Franklin and the Gordon Rivers. But Tasmania was still a little bit divided. There was a pro-dam rally in Hobart, which also attracted just over 2,500 people. And while the blockade was ongoing... Uh, Norm Sanders ended up resigning from the Tasmanian House of Assembly to try to contest a seat in the Australian Senate. He was replaced, very crucially, by Bob Brown, who was had only been released from jail the previous day before being elected to the Tasmanian House of Assembly after spending 19 days in jail for his role in the blockade. So moving into January 1983, there were 50 people arriving, making the blockade bigger every day. Um, the state government tried to make things very difficult for those protesters. A lot of them were arrested, over 1,200 people arrested, as we mentioned. Um, they passed several laws and enforced special bail conditions for any of those who were arrested. They unloaded bulldozers and um, uh, they tried to Basically, they, under the protection of police, un, uh, put, brought in bulldozers, which was rather threatening. Um, but protesters managed to impede machinery and they occupied the sites associated with the construction work. Nearly 500 people were then imprisoned for breaking the terms of their bail. Um, there was a massive overflow in prisons in the region at the time. So this was a really big uh, political catastrophe at the time because suddenly it was becoming clear that the protest was actually winning. The government could not, the Tasmanian government could not deal with this any further. Um, it was looking like it was a pretty divided issue until in February, a Hobart rally against the dam drew 20,000 people and they labeled that a day of action. They called it G-Day. Um, 231 more people were arrested as boats uh, took to the Gordon River and the Wilderness Society flag was flown above Hobart. Uh, eventually, it all came down to the fact that they managed to sway the opinion against the Fraser federal government because on the 5th of March 1983, the Labor Party under Bob Hawke won the federal election with a very, very large swing. The new Prime Minister, Bob Hawke, vowed to stop the dam from being built, which had actually increased his majority. So, of course, he stuck by that. A lot of Victorians as well took a strong interest in that issue. But what was a little bit, put a little bit of a, a spanner in the works is that the, in Tasmania, the vote had gone against 
the national trend. The Liberals held all five seats in Tasmania. Um, so it was a little bit difficult because obviously the people who were locals seemed to disagree. But Hawke's government passed regulations under the National Parks and Wildlife Conservation Act of 1975. And then eventually when it was declared uh, that it would be a UNESCO World Heritage Site, they passed the World Heritage Properties Conservation Act of 1983, which prohibited any, uh, any dam-related clearing, excavation, and building activities on the Franklin River. Of course, today you can visit the Franklin and Gordon Rivers. They, are, they do remain a UNESCO World Heritage Site and therefore also a national park. They're a very beautiful part of the world. And thankfully so, because they don't have a giant dam uh, blocking them off. So that major protest taking place in late 1982 and coming to a conclusion in early 1983. Uh, so fantastic stuff from a fantastic environmental initiative um, that really did mark a turning point in Australia's environmental policy as well as we began to take a little bit more seriously the uh, the preciousness of our national parks and world heritage areas. We're going to take another quick song break here on Throwback Thursday. When we come back, we're going to be talking about Michael Jackson's Thriller, uh, which was released in late 1982. You're listening to Throwback Thursday. This is a song break. You are listening to Throwback Thursday, 1982. Elsewhere in 82, the popular science fiction film E.T. the Extraterrestrial debuted during June. It was written by Melissa Matheson and produced and directed by Steven Spielberg. The story revolves around a young boy named Elliot and his younger sister, who was played by a six-year-old Drew Barrymore in one of her first major roles. They go on a quest to help a lost alien named E.T. return to his home planet. At the time of its release, it was an immediate hit, surpassing Star Wars as the highest-grossing film of all time, a title which it held until 1993. The film was considered one of the most popular of the decade and won four Academy Awards from nine nominations. You're listening to 106.9 Tune FM. This is Thriller by Michael Jackson.
Listening to Throwback Thursday 1982, Kuwata vs. Bjelke Peterson, The Franklin Dam, and Thriller. You are indeed listening to Throwback Thursday 1982. It's great to be back with you here on Tune. We're going to have a brief talk just to wrap up the show this evening about Michael Jackson's Thriller. We will be hearing a lot more about it next week since a lot of the singles were released in early 1983, but the album was actually released on the 30th of November 1982. Uh, and it is regarded as the greatest album of all time. Seven singles, um, all of which made it into the top 10, which remains a record. Um, the most top 10 singles from a single album, both Beat It and Billie Jean would reach number one as well. Uh, Michael Jackson was essentially inspired to create an album where every song was a killer, but crucially, there was an ongoing backlash against disco at the start of the 1980s. People didn't really want disco anymore. And Michael Jackson uh, was rather, well, known for disco slash pop songs. So he incorporated more pop, a bit of post-disco, a bit of rock, a bit of funk uh, to take his music in an entirely different direction, including a guest appearance by Paul McCartney on the album as well. And it would become his first number one album, surprisingly, considering that it was his sixth studio album and he was already relatively popular, although it was this album, of course, that made him uh, as renowned as he is today. He produced the singles uh, The Girl Is Mine, Billie Jean, Beat It, uh, Wanna Be Starting Something, Human Nature, Pretty Young Thing, and Thriller. It is, remains the best-selling album of all time, with 66 million copies sold worldwide. It is the second best-selling album in the United States. And get this, it was certified 33 times platinum by the Recording Industry Association of America, it getting its 33rd platinum recognition in 2017. It won eight Grammy Awards, which remains a record at the 1984 Grammys, including Album of the Year, of course. Um, it was the best-selling album worldwide of 1983 and was the first album ever to become the best-selling album in the United States two years in a row. 
1983 and 1984. It's also renowned for having broken racial barriers in popular music, um, with Jackson eventually making appearances on MTV and meeting with President Ronald Reagan at the White House. So um, that's also an incredible uh, moment of cultural significance brought on by this album. The last thing that I want to mention is that not only was it a phenomenon of music, but the Thriller music video was inducted into the National Film Preservation Board's National Film Registry of Culturally, Historically, or Aesthetically Significant Films, um, which is absolutely incredible. You know, only the best movies uh, get nomin- get put into that uh, registry. So for a music video to make it is also a, a massive, massive achievement. It is still considered to be uh, a cultural landmark and possibly the greatest album ever created. Um, and well, rightfully so. We're going to be hearing a lot more of Thriller next week as we move into 1983, the year when most of those singles are labeled as having been released. So um, that will be There'll be plenty more of that to come next week. But I hope you've enjoyed Throwback Thursday this week. Uh, Next week, we're going to be hopefully joined by someone on the show. Of course, all of our lecturers are very busy people at the moment, so make sure you're showing them some appreciation as well. I will get right back into the music right after the show, so don't go anywhere. Plenty more to come tonight on Tune FM. Thank you for listening to Throwback Thursday 1982. Don't forget to join us at the same time next week. We're moving on to 1983. We'll be discussing such things as the Ash Wednesday bushfires and Australia's winning of the America's Cup. You're listening to 106.9 Tune FM, your home of student-powered radio for the last 50 years.